Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with Aristotle. <laughs> or should I say, Dr. Dr. Tsirigos. Dr. Tsirigos. And, but your first name, though, the reason I called you Aristotle is because your first name, is, how do you pronounce your first name? I don't want to get it wrong. In Greek, so it's Aristotelis. Aristotelis. Exactly. Yeah. So, so my mother actually had this idea of uh, calling me Aristotle or yeah. Aristotelis. She studied uh, archaeology in Greece. Oh, wow. So usually in Greece, the tradition is that you get the same name that your grandfather had. Ah, I see. But they kind of broke that tradition <laughs> uh, and they went uh, ancient Greek. And my brother is actually younger and he's Alexander. So oh, okay. very nice oh, okay. uh, match, actually. Nice. Well, it's pretty cool to, to break the tradition and go with a name like Aristotle. I think it's quite... Uh, it, it delivers a punch, I feel like. Exactly. And this is what <laughs> science is about. Exactly. Partially, you're yeah. breaking tradition. Exactly. Uh, so, Dr. Tsirigos, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you are an associate professor in the pathology department at the NYU School of Medicine, and you are also the director of the Applied Bioinformatics Corps. Laboratories. Laboratories. Yes. So uh, let's start this way. So let's say you are at a cocktail party and uh, someone comes up to you and asks you, uh, what do you do for a living? What do you tell them? I tell them that we do research in uh, biology and research in medicine. And we do this uh, by using computers, using statistical models, using uh, algorithms to um, discover unexpected things in data. Mm-hmm. So as far as the um, the data goes, most of what is what is usually your input data? Is there one particular source, or the, do you have multiple different ways that you approach? Uh, so usually, uh, most of the time, at least, we collaborate with uh, experimentalists, biologists uh, who uh, do experiments in the lab, and they produce uh, data in different forms. It can be um, sequences of DNA, it can be proteins, it can be expression levels of genes. Now, lately, it can be also images that we're analyzing. Um, So that's one source of data. Uh, But then, you know, in this uh, era of big data, another big source of data is the public domain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, every scientist has to deposit their data after they publish their studies. Uh, But we can also leverage, and we're planning to do this more and more, we can leverage public data in any domain. Uh, mobile data you can think of, sure. or data in Wikipedia, newspapers. We don't do it yet, but I, I expect that we will be doing this. Mm-hmm. So if we're back at this cocktail party and you're talking to someone, they'll say, wow, how do you do that using computers? When I think of biomedical research, I think of people in these crazy complex labs. Are you just sitting there with a the computer doing something? So what exactly is, is the, the process like? When you get this input data, what do you do? So when we get the input data, the, the first thing we do is we have, of course, established um, some uh, pipelines, we call them mm-hmm. computational pipelines, some methods, some protocols of analyzing this data. The first thing we do is to check the validity of the data. Right. Is the data the same way we expect it to be? We've seen it all this, all this time. Um, so that's the very first thing we do. Uh, the next thing we do is we may check whether specific genes are, have the pattern, the expression pattern, let's say, that, we, that we've been told by the investigator. 
but more usually what happens is, you know, this is an interact, interactive process between the biologists mm. and the computer scientists. It's not something that happens in the vacuum. You get data one day and you look at the data and then you just ship it back to your collaborators. These are true collaborations. So usually what happens is you already know about the biology, you already know about, let's say, the particular disease that you're studying. We're mainly focusing in cancer and more specifically in yep. leukemia in the lab. Yep. So we know a lot about the disease itself. We know a lot about the genes that are um, mutated in this disease already. And we're at the point where we're trying to really find something new, something unexpected, something that maybe not even the biologists can think of. And that's exactly where we're adding value to this whole process. Right. We're looking for something unexpected in the data. All right. So you mentioned big data. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means in the context of scientific research? Mm -hmm. So big data comes in many flavors. Uh, it's both the size of the data that we're talking about, but it's also the different types of data uh, that we have now access to. Uh, so it could mean, for example, that you are involved in a study that, ha that includes a lot of patients, for example. Uh, in the past, it was that you maybe had data from five patients. Today, uh, there are all these public databases that have uh, data on thousands of patients. Um, so the size, of course, is important, but also the type of the data is important. It's one thing to only know some basic clinical information about the patient, which you can now typically uh, easily get, for example, the age of the patient, the type of the disease. It's a very different thing to go down all the way to the, the actual DNA of those patients. Um, that was actually impossible to imagine, I would say, 20 years ago, we started thinking about it that, oh, maybe it's feasible 10 years ago. It's now happening. Right. So then this, this, uh, this DNA data that you get from patients is a result of advanced technologies and sequencing, which I, I guess would put it in a very simple way is just a way of reading uh, DNA from it could be cells that you have uh, in a lab or from patients, right? So I guess the, the next generation sequencing technologies is what, what they're called uh, have enabled kind of all this big data approaches. It's exactly yeah. what you're saying. It's yeah. about reading. It's about yeah. reading your DNA. It's about observing, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. It's about accumulating data. It's analogous to what happened with physics, I would say, a century ago. Right. Uh, we had the technology at some point to measure more of, and more of these phenomena that were happening in, in the physical world. Now we have the technology of actually going down all the way to our DNA mm -hmm. and measuring this cheaply in a high-throughput fashion. Right. So reading the, the DNA, I guess, is one thing. You can take a look at how patients that uh, have specific diseases have differences in their DNA sequence compared to normal uh, people, I guess. But then uh, some of your research, or maybe a lot of it, centers around epigenetic changes. Mm -hmm. So how do we... So can you first, first of all explain what epigenetics is, and mm -hmm. how do you bridge the gap between looking at genetic changes and studying the epigenetics of a disease? Mm -hmm. So um, let me see if I can <laughs> explain it in a very simple way. Uh, so all our cells, of course, have DNA, have genetic material. This is what passes from generation to generation. Uh, and that's uh, 
more or less contact, uh, uh, constant. Of mm-hmm. course, uh, you mix f- uh, DNA from uh, from a father and a mother, and so there's some com- recombination in there, and there are some other random events that can happen. But essentially, all your cells, if nothing goes wrong, have the same DNA, have the same, let's say, recipe. Mm-hmm. DNA. Think of DNA as the recipe to make genes, make proteins that make your body function, essentially. Uh, But now, here's the problem. Is DNA enough? Let's think about it for a second. Is a recipe enough? Uh, Obviously, no, because what I just said is that every cell is exactly the same. So how is it possible that every cell is the same, has the same recipe, yet you have hair and you have ears and you have eyes and you have liver and you have all these different uh, organs in your body? Uh, The answer to that is epigenetics. So there's something on top of it uh, and that's exactly what it means in Greek, by the way. Epi mm. means on top of right. genetics. So epigenetics. So there is genetics, there is the basis, there is the book of life, there is the, the recipe, but it's also how you execute the recipe. Uh, what parts of the recipe you uh, execute. Maybe it's a book of recipes, DNA, right. but you need a different uh, recipe for the liver, a different recipe for, to make a lung, and so on and so forth. And the only way that uh, such a complex population of cells can know what it is, is essentially epigenetics. It's a state um, that your DNA is in. And why is, of course, epigenetics important? Maybe you've guessed it already, because think of cancer as a destabilization, not only of the recipe itself, but of the way that the recipe is executed. It's a combination of these two things. So in this analogy, I guess, epigenetics is the chef. That yes, makes a specific pre- pretty much. And maybe cancer is a chef that likes one particular recipe too much. Absolutely. <laughs> got, got addicted. There are all these yeah, theories. That exactly. There's an oncogenic addiction. Exactly. Yeah. So in your research with leukemia, what specific epigenetic factors or ha- have you uncovered that uh, lead to a better understanding of the disease? Uh, so a few years ago... Um, I was still actually at IBM Research, a very mm-hmm. uh, computer science-oriented yes, uh, uh, yeah. place. And, uh, uh, of course, I had a long history with NYU. I did my PhD at NYU in the computer science department. At some point, I met a scientist, Dr. Ifandis, who was here at the NYU School of Medicine. And he was working in leukemia. And he said, you know, maybe we have... It's not obvious, but maybe we have some common interests. Sure. Uh, you like biology, uh, your computer science, but maybe we can uh, do something together. So uh, we started, we didn't know what we were going to find, actually. Epigenetics was still a very um, unexplored field, mm-hmm. especially in cancer. We're talking about cancer. Um, but again, the value of observation. So this, these techniques, these technologies, as we described before, they became cheaper and cheaper uh, the last few years. So his lab was able to use a mouse model of leukemia to make a few observations about epigenetics. Um, so they, they, they had their mice, they had their normal mice, and they had the mice where they induced leukemia. And we essentially compared the epigenetic state um, in the two mice, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and then we used algorithms to see what's different um, how is the recipe that we're describing before executed differently right. in the leukemic mice versus the normal mice? Right. 
Uh, and we did find actually some striking, not everything was different, that's why the algorithms were important not to be designed properly, but uh, most of the things may um, have been the same between the two mice, sure. but we, we observed something very striking, um, which was um, a very specific histone modification uh, mark, which essentially has to do, again, with the recipe. It decides, it's, very, it's a very interesting mark, because it decides which parts of the genome are going to be inactive, in other words, not executing any recipe, uh, com and leave open for execution other parts of the, of the DNA. Uh, and so we saw that this pattern of uh, suppressed recipes was deregulated, essentially, in cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then looking, of course, uh, the literature, we, we knew what were the proteins that were controlling this uh, epigenetic state, and we hypothesized that this protein is EZH2, or it's, mm -hmm. it's part of a bigger complex, uh, polycom repressive complex, we hypothesized that in actual patients, this um, protein complex was mutated. Right. We found the data to support this mm. hypothesis that was our very first uh, work uh, Nice. Uh, yeah. Five, six years ago. And then from then, what is the next step so to then, push this along? Again, so one discovery is actually very interesting in science. One discovery makes you happy. It's like a basketball game. <laughs> you win, you're happy, but then the next second you're thinking of the next game. Right. Yeah. Uh, exactly what happened here. So we found, as I said before, that this... Uh, protein complex was mutated in patients in a very significant frequency, 25%. How about the rest? 75%. So our next exactly. question was, um, is it maybe that this repressive complex blocks certain uh, or fails to block, mm -hmm. actually in that case, uh, some recipes, some normal recipes from being executed? Or is it that some other complex competing with that repressive complex is actually actively pushing some oncogenic recipes to right. be uh, activated. So uh, we turned our focus to that uh, other competing factors. Mm -hmm. And that was our next oh. study. We showed that they act from a different point of view. They're helping cancer as opposed to the other molecule, which was suppressing cancer. So I have a question. So if, uh, let's say, so you mentioned the word algorithms, right, which I guess is kind of... Uh, for people outside of your field, is kind of like the black box of, uh, of what uh, it is that data scientists or bioinformaticians do. That's, I guess, where most of the, the computational power comes from. Uh, so the, you, you use these algorithms to find a difference in epigenetic signatures between these two mouse models, which you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So let's say you, you, you found this difference in 25% uh, of patients. Would it be possible to remove these... 25% uh, patients from the data set and then do the, run the same analysis on the remaining 75% to find another potential difference? Was that completely wrong? Um, let me think about it. So, so the way this worked was a little different mm -hmm. uh, because we started from the mouse model. So we made a prediction from the mouse model on very limited data. Actually, we're talking about big data, mm. but... That was an interesting approach because we started from small data right. yeah. and we kind of verified this observation and expanded it in a bigger data set. Um, now you're asking a different question. If we started from the big data set, right. maybe, mm -hmm. 
and we had enough data, um, I think the algorithms are designed to specifically find what you're looking for, right? It's just okay. the, the idea of an algorithm is, uh, the essence of the algorithm is to just do it right. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what you have to do with an algorithm is translate a real natural language question, a hypothesis, into something that the machine can understand. Right. Um, that's what the algorithm is. Uh, to me, the value, of course, there is value in the algorithm itself and the statistics and everything needs to be done properly. But for me, the biggest value is to ask the right questions. Right. Uh, because at some point, even if you have very big data, at the end of the day, it's about having intuition, mm -hmm. uh, knowledge about the biology, so you can ask the right question. So it's, it's a, just that the algorithm is going to translate this question into something that the computer can understand. Okay. So I guess obviously it's a, it's a translator. It's a little more complex than okay. Tell me the the difference in gene expression between this model and or, or this patient data set and that patient data set, right? So I guess if you so so the key thing here is that you would focus in your search using the algorithms mm -hmm. rather than just kind of because it's more difficult to just kind of look genome wide. Mm -hmm. I guess. Yes, yeah. and, and um, if we want to, to talk more about practical aspects of, uh, of uh, bioinformatics or designing algorithms in these contexts, one of the big challenges is the noise in this data. So we've talked a lot about increasing size of the data and the different data types that you get, but we didn't talk at all about challenges. So one challenge is obvious, the bigger the data, the more disk space you need to store everything, the, the bigger the computational power you need to process everything. Uh, but this data is noisy. This data comes from biological systems, especially when it comes from human beings. Human beings are all different. They eat differently, they have different habits. Right. Um, and then the measurement themselves introduce noise. Mm -hmm. So one of the big challenges we are facing is to decouple the noise from the actual signal. Right. And there are many ways to do that. There are statistics to do that, uh, but there is also what we call uh, data integration. So if you have different data types, so if you're measuring this and measuring that, measuring the gene and measuring the protein and measuring a few other things, maybe you get a more global picture of what's going on and you can trust your analysis more than if you just did the analysis on one data type. So that's what yeah, we do a lot sure. in the lab. We kind of validate uh, our findings in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And the, I guess the, the noise reduction, I guess, step comes very early on. Uh, or would it be so, just it, it actually, along the way? Actually, it's interesting. It comes either very early on, so you're just testing your data, you're doing what we're calling quality assessment, maybe we decide that the very first step to, to discard the data. Maybe it's so bad that we cannot use it. Mm -hmm. So it comes in the beginning, but then you constantly check your data, and by the way, also your analysis, the analysis itself, along the way. Um, because as I said, you're adding more and more data types. Yep. Uh, and you're asking at every step of the way, and that, I think it's, it's part of the... Um, uh, secret behind a successful analysis to really question yourself and your analysis and your data, everything, mm -hmm. all the way until you're really convinced that what you're finding is a true, true finding. Sure. So I have a question about a specific type of data. 
that uh, you might use. Uh, so high C mm -hmm. is a specific technique, I guess, to um, get, uh, I guess, a chromatin proximity within cells, mm -hmm. right? So uh, which part of uh, chromosomes of chromatin are interacting with each other physically mm -hmm. rather than downstream gene products? Uh, mm -hmm. in signaling networks. So this is a physical interaction. So my question is uh, how, because it is, uh, uh, it's, it's more, the way the technique works, it's more of a, like I said, a proximity assay, not necessarily a interaction assay. Mm -hmm. So how, could you speak to the difference between between that and how you trust uh, to some degree, high C data, or what makes it uh, trustworthy? So, okay, let, let's start from the beginning. Sure. So, what is uh, what are these chromatin interactions? Mm -hmm. So, DNA is a very long molecule. It's uh, about two meters long. It has to fit in a very tiny space within your within the nucleus of your cell. And uh, naturally, to do that, it has to be folded in space. And if you fold something in a very tiny space, uh, inevitably different parts of that long chain are going to touch each other. Uh, so people have found, it's been studied extensively over the years, that uh, some of these interactions, physical proximity, as you said, potentially mediated by proteins, uh, confers function. So, so it's not something that's random, at least not completely random. Mm -hmm. So the way uh, high c works, so high c is a technique to measure these interactions, these uh, uh, this proximity in space in a genome-wide scale, so for the entire DNA molecule. Um, and the protocol uh, starts actually with cross-linking proteins. So in a sense, all these interactions that you're getting, let's call them proximity yeah. uh, contacts. All these contacts that you're getting are mediated by proteins, mm -hmm. so they're all potentially functional. Okay. Um, now, of course, our research is to find maybe which ones and what are the rules behind the contacts that are actually functional and what is the function. So is it more like a repressive function that blocks this recipe, this part of DNA being, from being executed, or is it actually helping this other recipe mm -hmm. uh, to be executed more frequently. Uh, so this is part of active research uh, and the main focus of our lab, actually. Oh, okay. great. Uh, yeah, I, I guess because I'm outside of the field, I guess I was a little... Uh, I obviously have not looked into high-C research in detail, mm -hmm. but just reading about the technique, I was just wondering... Um, uh, and if, if it can be reliably used, as I guess, and I guess it is, uh, it's reliable to some extent. A again, mm -hmm. it has to do with um, with noise. We discussed right. about this before. It has to do, and there is always a trade-off between noise and how much and cost. Right? How much money do you want to spend to make this mm -hmm. really accurate? You can, yeah. But um, at some point, you have to. Uh, save money also. Uh, sometimes it's better to do more experiments than to try to do one experiment that it's perfectly uh, right. 
perfectly without any noise, especially because you have these algorithms that are, can actually help you mm -hmm. uh, remove part of the noise. Uh, and going back to high C, there's also different flavors. Again, people are trying to optimize it, get as much information as they can from it, or at least as accurate information as they can. So there's this new protocol now, high chip, which is a combination of high C and chip mm -hmm. sequencing. So essentially, it's again all these contacts that you're finding in 3D space of yeah. DNA. Chip, by the way, is a chromatin immunoprecipitation, yes. which uh, I guess means you study protein and DNA interactions, and so you've combined that with sequencing or with sequencing yeah. and with high C. So mm -hmm. it's a triple combination here that kind of allows you to focus on what you asked before, on functional, potential right. functional cool. interactions yeah. that are mediated um, by a specific protein that hopefully you know what it's doing. That's very cool. I didn't know that. I'm going to read about high chip. Everybody should read about high chip. So I guess you, you mentioned, um, I guess, looking at the expense of specific experiments that falls under the management of a, of a lab, I guess. So you as a, as a bioinformatician, computational biologist, what is your, what is a, a, a typical day in the life of uh, Dr. Sirigos, or is there one? Um, is there a typical day? So, so now it's a complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> this is more complicated than the science itself. <laughs> I think so, because as a, as a scientist and as a leader of a group, and in my case, uh, a leader of two groups, one is my own computational group, the other one is the Applied Bioinformatics Laboratories, which, which kind of extends bioinformatics services to the entire NYU community. Uh, yeah, days are not so typical, and that's a good thing, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, there's a lot of administrative things that you have to do, uh, and you're trying to minimize them somehow, but, but there's everything from managing the finances of the group, uh, making decisions about which experiment. We don't do experiments, but uh, we collaborate with labs that do. And sometimes there's a const constant struggle. You're telling them, oh, you have to do this experiment because you, it didn't work the first time around, need to repeat it. Or you're finding something interesting, and there's this uh, uh, very lively discussion on whether we should spend money to <laughs> really validate it. What's the impact going to be? Um, and then you meet with your students and your postdocs and you discuss cool ideas. They bring um, results from an analysis and you're looking. Um, and it's a lot of looking at data, yeah. really. Mm -hmm. You're zooming in into genes of interest. Sometimes there's genes that you've never heard before and that can be exciting yeah. or... You know, you start scratching your head. <laughs> Sometimes you get these interesting genes. For example, uh, we ran and there was this presentation today about this gene that's named OPA, OPA, OPA1. Uh -huh. And that's uh, very funny in Greek because <laughs> yes. it means, you know, let's, let's party now. Right. So when you find something like that, you know, there are moments that you just start laughing. Yeah. And um, bottom line is that it's a lot of fun. It yeah. can be a lot of fun. So previous to this position, you worked at IBM mm -hmm. for quite some time, and you mentioned that when uh, you met Dr. Arfantis, uh, maybe he, he or you or both of you uh, kind of saw that maybe there wasn't an obvious connection between what you were doing, mm -hmm. 
but you did find a, a common ground and it led to some really interesting research. Absolutely. So what were you doing at IBM um, before you started this position? So at IBM, I was doing uh, something similar, believe it or not. So okay. I was in the computational biology uh, group center uh, in IBM. IBM actually does have um, a long history of being involved in biology, mostly from simulation, from the simulation point of view, simulating proteins, uh, because back then uh, it needed a lot, and still does, need a lot of computational power. And of course, IBM is known for building supercomputers. So they had a, a very good team, very strong, small, 40 people, but very strong computational biology team. Mm -hmm. And I joined them actually during my PhD, which I did at uh, the computer science department of uh, NYU. I first joined them as a, a summer intern, and then as a postdoc, and then I became a research scientist. So again, we were looking into... Uh, problems in biology, and we were trying to design algorithms to find new things. Uh, what was different uh, when I started working with Dr. Ifandis was access to actual experimental data. I see. Mostly what we were doing at IBM was looking at existing data, published data, um, the human genome, the mouse genome, and the chimpanzee, and trying to find interesting patterns in those. Mm. But, you know, after some time, um, you found all you could find, <laughs> and you needed to expand your horizon. So, um, reaching out to doctors and biologists was beneficial for, uh, for me and for other colleagues at IBM. You mentioned during your, your PhD you did an internship with uh, IBM prior to joining them as a postdoc after your PhD. Uh, is that something that you feel was... Uh, so what made you do an internship with IBM, first of all? What got you... Mm -hmm. So what, what was your primary uh, research topic as a PhD student? Mm -hmm. And how did you end up in the biology sphere? Or were you mm -hmm. always kind of heading in this direction? I think I was heading in this direction since I was uh, in high school. Uh, I always liked math and computer science. I, I was a programmer when I was still in elementary school. Oh, wow. Uh, actually, my father had this great idea in 1985 to buy a PC. Uh, and, you know, soon after, you know, playing a few games, maybe for a few months, I realized that there's some other things that you can right. do with a computer. A couple other things. Uh, and then the very first thing I did was um, I found out, I was also playing the guitar, so I found out that there's this simplistic language back then, 1985, uh, that allowed you to, to uh, make songs. So you could write wow. songs, and then the computer would play that. That was so amazing. Of course, now it's <laughs> trivial. But yeah. I was so amazed, and I said, you know, you can do things with the computer. And then I learned about basic programming languages, and um, I really enjoyed it. Now, in school, we were not high school. We were not in Greece. Uh, we were not taught biology that deeply, but there was a course, and I really liked it. But I couldn't, at that point, see the connection. I said, you know, I really like computer science and math. I don't know how this can be useful in biology. There was no big data back then. But it was always somewhere in my mind. So, so I decided to be a computer science, and that was it. But then when I did my PhD, human genome project, 
was mm. kind of starting or, or I guess almost complete. Uh, and I saw that potential. I saw that data is uh, coming to this field. Mm. And if there is data, there's computer science. And so my PhD was in uh, the computer science department, but with a bioinformatics oh, okay. focus. Okay. And uh, it's just that after two years, I think it was two years, in the program being done with classes and everything, I thought it may be a good idea to just um, get to know more people, exposed to, to more uh, experiences, I guess. I just want to do an internship. Then I found out that IBM Research is here. I don't have to relocate, and they have a computational biology group. So it was right. a perfect fit. Oh, nice. Could you speak to, the, because there in, in the past, I guess, couple of decades, there's been a decline, let's say, in the availability of uh, tenured professor-track professor, uh, professor track positions. So a lot of people who do PhDs, if they are uh, planning to stay in academia, they, in recent years, have found it more difficult to find a, mm -hmm. a stable position right away. So... And there's been a lot of push towards kind of exploring alternative career paths and different ways you can go with a PhD, not necessarily just mm -hmm. to stay in academia. But I guess, could you speak to, to the value of doing an internship at a company like IBM and then actually working for them and then kind of circling mm -hmm. your way back? Because mm -hmm. I guess may, maybe, but maybe not, or is that a typical trajectory uh, for someone? Uh, I wouldn't say it's typical. Maybe it's yeah. becoming more frequent now. Um, I think it's a good thing. It was kind of natural for me. I'm not sure I can explain why. Partly because IBM Research is a great place to, to be at. It's, I would say, semi-academic. I wouldn't mm -hmm. consider it like pure. Okay. Um, they focus on publishing, right. which is great. Yeah. And, uh, and I think we do um, see that now. We do see that big companies... It was At some point, it was just IBM. Uh, before that, it was Bell Labs and one, a right. few others. Yeah, yeah. But then only IBM survived. Uh, however, now, again, in the big data era, you can see that Microsoft has a research lab, Amazon, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, uh, Google, obviously. Yeah. I would say even um, uh, like the social media companies or even like Facebook. Yeah, I'm sure has to a, Facebook. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Facebook uh, hired uh, one of the top uh, neural network pioneers. Mm. So they have a research team. Uh, Walmart, even I mean, wherever there's <laughs> big data, they Walmart need. Walmart is doing uh, as they, a research they need wing. big scientists. Wow. Uh, they need data scientists. And the other aspect of it, some of them also want to publish what they find. So mm -hmm. if you choose such a place, I think it's important these days to publish, uh, not necessarily in peer-reviewed journals, but it's good to have this uh, exposure right. because right. it kind of shows what you've done. Right. It's like an artist. You, I, I often compare scientists to artists because... On the one hand, you have to be creative, like an artist has to. On the other hand, you have to show to the world what you're doing. Right. So uh -huh. what good is an artist if they just um, create and then never present their work? Very true. It doesn't have yeah. to be a big audience. Let's not think of 
mm-hmm. uh, popular artists that everybody knows. But but you have to present, uh, and it could just be by publishing. You know, that's also presentation. Yeah. So, publishing, but maybe not in peer-reviewed journals. There are also all the preprint archives. I know you and I mm-hmm. have actually had conversations about this before. I wanted to mention something a little random. Uh, have you heard of this new online app called Paper? It's known as the Tinder for preprints. Is it? I've yeah. No, tell me about it. <laughs> have you, are you familiar with Tinder? Let's start there. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So Tinder. I mean, if you're listening to this and you don't know about Tinder, I don't know what to do. Uh, but it's, it's <laughs> but yeah, so Tinder is, is look a, it, up. It, it, you look it up. It's a matchmaking app, right? So uh, there's a couple of uh, data scientists made an app called Paper P A P R, in which they take preprints from the bioarchive and present just the abstract, not the authors, not mm-hmm. the, any of the data, just the abstract, and you get to decide if you find it interesting, questionable, mm-hmm. uninteresting, whatever. And uh, so that's a that's an interesting concept, I think. And uh, there's no real... Uh, th- th- I guess there's no real consequence for the paper if, uh, uh, if people find it boring or, or something, but I guess it, it will be interesting to track people's interest, uh, interests uh, on this thing. Absolutely. Have, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? I like it, and I would take <laughs> it a step further. I would yeah. say, let's make an app that takes your boring abstract, because you're a scientist <laughs> and you know, don't know how to write, and makes it more interesting. Yeah, there we go, there we go. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> right. So, one last thing that I would like to, to ask you, which I, I try to ask everyone, is if you could offer a piece of advice to any young scientist, anyone considering getting into the sciences, uh, into computational biology or any sort of science field, uh, what would that piece of advice be? Patience and passion. Patience and passion. That's it. I think that summarizes everything. That's it. Aristotle, everybody. P and P. (laughs) Patience. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. You're welcome. Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.